0: Part one chapter one of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire by Henriette Lucile La Tour du Pincubernet, edited, abridged and translated by Walter Gere. This is a Librivox recording, All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Whoever writes a book almost always does so with the idea that it will be read. Either before or after his death. But I do not intend to write a book, merely the journal of my life. If I were only to relate events, a few sheets of paper would suffice for a record of so little interest. But if I undertake to set forth the history of my opinions and my feelings, the journal of my heart, the enterprise is more difficult. For to depict one's self, Self-knowledge is essential, and one does not begin to acquire that at 50 years of age. Perhaps I shall speak of the past and tell the story of my early years only in episodes and without continuity. I do not pretend to write my confessions, but although I should dislike to reveal my faults, I wish nevertheless to depict myself as I am and as I have been. I have never written anything except letters to those I love. I have no order in my ideas and little method. My memory is already much impaired. Moreover, my imagination carries me sometimes so far from the subject I wish to follow, that it is difficult for me to pick up the threads so often broken by these digressions. My heart, is still so young that i have to look at myself in the mirror to realize that i am no longer twenty years of age let me then take advantage of the ardor which still remains and which the infirmities of age may sweep away at any moment to relate some facts of a troubled life but one not so unhappy from the events known to the public as from the secret afflictions known only to god childhood of mademoiselle dillon during my earliest years i was a witness of many incidents which should have debased my mind perverted and corrupted my heart and destroyed in me every idea of morality and religion from the age of ten i was present when the conversation was most free and heard expressed the most ungodly principles I was brought up in the house of an archbishop where all the rules of religion were daily violated i knew from observation that i was taught dogmas and doctrines exactly as i was instructed in history and geography my mother had married her cousin arthur dillon with whom she had been brought up and whom she regarded only as a brother she was very beautiful and the angelic sweetness of her character caused her to be loved by everybody. Men adored her, and women were not jealous of her. Although free from coquetry, she was not sufficiently reserved in her relations with men who took her fancy, and who the world said were in love with her. One of her admirers in particular spent his entire life in the house of my grandmother and of my uncle the Archbishop, where my mother lived, he also went to the country with us. The prince de Géminay, nephew of the notorious Cardinal de Rohan, was therefore considered by everybody as my mother's lover. But I do not think this was true, for the Duc de Lausanne, the Duc de Liancourt, and the Comte de saint Blancard were equally attentive to her. The Comte de Fersen, who was reputed to be the lover of Queen Marie Antoinette, also came to our house nearly every day, My mother took the fancy of the Queen, who was always impressed by brilliancy. Madame Dillon was much in vogue. And for this reason only she entered the royal household, and became a dame du palais. At that time I was seven or eight years of age. My grandmother, who was a woman of very haughty character, and of infinite ill-nature, running frequently into a rage enjoyed nevertheless the affections of her daughter my mother was absolutely under her control entirely dependent upon her mother in money matters she had never dared to point out that as the only daughter of her father general de Rott, who died when she was fifteen years old she had the right to control her own fortune my grandmother had taken possession arbitrarily de vie force of the domain of Hautefontaine, which had been purchased with the funds of her husband. Daughter of a peer of England of slender fortune, she had received a very small inheritance. But my mother, married at seventeen years of age to a man of eighteen who had been brought up with her, and who had no property except his regiment, could never find the courage to talk to my grandmother of money matters, The Queen opened her eyes to her interests and encouraged her to demand an accounting. My grandmother was furious, and in place of maternal tenderness, became possessed of an inconceivable rage, such as you find described only in romances or tragedies. My earliest recollections are of the frightful scenes between my mother and my grandmother, which I was obliged to appear not to notice. Reserve and discretion on my part were absolutely necessary. I contracted the habit of hiding my feelings. I remember that I was shocked by the way in which my mother complained to her friends of my grandmother. My father naturally took the part of my mother, but I knew that he was under great pecuniary obligations to my uncle, the Archbishop, and his position to me seemed false. These reflections developed ideas and experiences which were too precocious in the head of a child of ten years I never had any infancy. The only person who saved me from these bad influences and encouraged the thoughts of virtue in my heart was a maid who could neither read nor write. She was a young peasant by the name of Marguerite from the neighbourhood of Compiègne. She was very devoted to me. And remained in my service nearly all of her life i knew that marguerite was worthy of all confidence and that she would rather die than compromise me by an indiscreet word the manners and customs of society have changed so much since the revolution that i wish to retrace in some detail what i recall of the mode of life of my family My great-uncle, the Archbishop of Narbonne, rarely visited his diocese. President ex-officio of the States of Languedoc, he visited this province solely to preside over the meetings of the States, which were in session six weeks during the months of November and December. As soon as the meeting was over, he returned to Paris, under the pretext that the interests of his province imperiously demanded his presence at the Court but in reality in order to live en grand seigneur at Paris, and as a courtier at Versailles. Besides the Archbishopric of Narbonne, which paid him 250,000 francs a year, he had an abbey which was worth 110,000, still another which was worth 90,000, and he received an allowance of more than 50,000 francs for giving dinners every day during the meetings of the States. It would seem that with such an income he should have been able to live honourably and at his ease, but nevertheless he was always in financial difficulties. His style of life at Paris was noble, but simple, and the daily fare, although abundant, was reasonable. At this epoch, grand dinners were never given, because everyone dined at an early hour, at 2.30 or 3 o'clock at the latest the ladies were sometimes coiffed, but never dressed for dinner the men on the contrary were usually dressed in embroidered or plain costumes according to their age or taste but almost never in evening dress or in uniform those who were not going out in the evening and the master of the house were in formal dress and en negligee for the necessity of putting on a hat deranged the fragile edifice of the curled and powdered toupee. After dinner there was general conversation or sometimes a game of backgammon. The ladies then retired to dress and the men awaited them to go to the theatre if they were to be in the same loge. Those who remained at home received visitors during the afternoon. At 9.30 in the evening the guests arrived for supper. The supper was the real event of the day in society, there were two kinds of suppers, those given by the persons who had them every day, which permitted a certain number of persons to drop in when they wished, and the more formal affairs which were more brilliant and more numerously attended, and to which the guests were invited. I speak of the period of my infancy from 1778 to 1784. I never attended one of these fine suppers, but have often seen my mother dressing to go to one of the Hôtel de Choiseul or the Palais-Royal. At this time there were fewer balls than later. The costumes worn by the ladies naturally turned dancing into a kind of torture. Every one wore heels three inches high, which put the foot in an unnatural position a pannier of heavy stiff whalebone extended to the right and the left a coiffure a foot high surmounted by a bonnet called pouf upon which feathers flowers and diamonds were piled up besides a pound of powder and pomade which at the least movement caused to fall upon the shoulders such a scaffolding rendered it impossible to dance with pleasure but at the suppers where everybody talked or enjoyed a little music This edifice was not disturbed. But to return to my family. We went to the country early in the spring for the whole summer. At the chateau of Fontaine there were twenty-five apartments for guests, and these were often filled. The principal season, however, was during the month of October. It was then that the colonels came back from their regiments where they had passed four months less the number of hours necessary to return to Paris, from which city they scattered to the different chateaux to visit their families and their friends. At Hautefontaine, there was a hunting establishment, the expense of which was divided between my uncle, the Prince de Guimenez, and the Duc de Lausanne. I have heard it said that the expense did not exceed 30,000 francs, but in this sum was not included the outlay for the saddle-horses of the masters, only the dogs, the wages of the huntsmen, who were English, their horses, and the keep of the whole establishment. The hunt was held during the summer and autumn in the forests of Compiègne and ville The hunt establishment was kept on such a scale that the poor King Louis Sixteenth was seriously jealous. At the age of seven i took part in the hunt once or twice a week and when i was ten years old the day of st hubert i broke my leg they tell me that i showed great courage and did not make a complaint though it was necessary to carry me five leagues on a stretcher my first visit to versailles was at the time of the birth of the first dauphin in october 1781 how often the recollection of these days of splendor of Marie Antoinette comes to my mind when I think of the torments and ignominies of which he was afterwards the unfortunate victim. I went to see the ball given by the Garde du Corps in the Grande Salle de Spectacle in the Chateau of Versailles. The Queen opened the ball with a simple young guard. She was dressed in a blue gown all sprinkled with sapphires and diamonds beautiful, young, adored by all, having just given a dauphin to France. Not dreaming of the possibility of a backward step in her brilliant career, she was already on the edge of the abyss. I shall not undertake to describe the intrigues of the court which my great youth prevented me from judging or even comprehending. I heard it said at the time that the queen had commenced to take a fancy to Madame de Polignac, who was very pretty, but had little animation. Her sister in law, the Comtesse Diane de Polignac, who was older and very intrigante, advised her as to the means of securing the royal favor. I recall that Monsieur de Gemenay endeavored to warn my mother of this growing favor of Madame de Polignac but my mother accepted the Queen's love without thinking to profit by her favour, either to augment her own fortune or to make that of her friend's. She felt that she was already attacked by the malady from which she was to perish less than two years later. At this time my father was in America at the head of the 1st Battalion of his regiment. The Dillon Regiment had entered the service of France in 1690, At the time that James II had lost all hope of remounting the throne, after the Battle of the Boyne. The regiment was commanded at that time by my great-grandfather, Arthur Dillon. End of part one. Chapter one.